you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. LAS Studios. I want to thank everybody for coming. It's a wonderful occasion for your 45th launch anniversary. Let's cheer to that. Right now, at this very moment, wherever you're listening to this, the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft are exploring places no humans have ever been. They've explored Jupiter and Saturn. Voyager 2 went to Uranus and Neptune the only spacecraft ever to make a visit. NASA launched these probes nearly 50 years ago, in 1977. The probes are identical, down to the smallest detail, which I find weirdly adorable. These twins are still traveling today, exploring the outermost edge of the solar system and beyond. All my life, I've followed space missions the way other people follow sports and it's still hard for me to wrap my head around that. And I'm not alone. I've been thinking about Voyager for those 45 years, and so it'll be difficult to compress all of the thoughts and feelings I have about this epic mission of exploration. That's Andrean. Anne co-wrote Cosmos, the 1980 PBS documentary series hosted by Carl Sagan. She and Sagan married in 1981. I made this recording of her in 2022 at NASA's celebration of Voyager's 45th anniversary. I was surrounded by people who were amazed and joyful. It was nice being around that. I'm M.G. Lord. I am, you could say, a touch interested in space exploration, specifically the engineering behind it. I published a book about it in 2005 called AstroTurf, the private life of rocket science. Aerospace has been a major part of my life for my entire life, and therefore, it's striking to me that when you hear about space today, it's not usually as, let's say, romantic as the Voyager mission celebration. I'm not saying the tone now is bad, it's just different. SpaceX Dragon, we're go for launch, let's light this candle. Space exploration today, when you hear about it on the news, is likely to be a story about a rich white man building himself, well, an enormous, shiny ballast. Lift off of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon, go NASA, go SpaceX, Godspeed, bottom dog. Why does it seem like once you become a billionaire, the only thing left to do to test your genius is to build yourself a rocket ship? One. Main engines up and running and lift off of the Falcon 9 to the space station. There's Elon Musk, the world's richest man, who not only oversees SpaceX, 
but who also has a plan to build a thousand starships to schlep humanity to Mars. I cannot emphasize this enough. This is the thing that we need to do. We must make life sustainably multiplanetary. There's just something about outer space, the cosmos, that inspires people to attempt the impossible. But the Voyager mission, the peak of nobility in my mind, and then the fantasies of the billionaire boys club, they do have things in common. Perhaps one thing, most importantly. None of these missions would be possible if it weren't for a different crew of maverick dreamers, ones you may never have heard of. They built rockets in the 1930s and 40s, way before rocket science was even a field. When everyone thought they were nuts, they relied on their genius, on each other and on nerves of steel. One of them also relied on drugs and sorcery and something called sex magic. We'll go into that later. They started a little thing called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, at Caltech in Pasadena, California. And without JPL, there's no NASA, no Voyager, no moon landing, no Jeff Bezos sending William Shatner to the edge of space. They were called the Suicide Squad. This is their story. This is season one of LA Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. I'm M.G. Lord. For a long time, heading for outer space was wild fantasy, science fiction, Jules Verne and Buck Rogers. We've all heard the phrase, it's not rocket science, to imply rocket science is a field reserved for smarter minds. Well, for a long time, rocket science wasn't rocket science either. A rocket is basically a bomb that explodes in one direction. A bomb you're trying to use to propel something else in a controlled enough fashion that it doesn't blow your face off. When the fuel ignites, a bunch of hot gas is produced, rushing out, creating what's called thrust. Gas streams backward, rocket flies forward. That's the simple version. Humanity has had rockets for hundreds of years, mainly as weapons. But just because we had rockets doesn't mean there was much science behind them. For engineers working in the early 20th century, the field lacked a foundation of research. The field wasn't so much a field as career suicide. 
The press ruthlessly mocked scientists who pursued rocketry. Even the New York Times joined the frenzy, suggesting that one early rocket pioneer lacked, quote, the knowledge ladled out daily in high schools, close quote. The public scorn was so great that this same pioneer fled to the desert to do his work in secret. So how does rocketry go from medieval weapons and public shaming to the cosmos? Who the hell was nutty enough to take it there? Well, the Suicide Squad. Frank Molina, Jack Parsons, Ed Foreman, and Chen Chushen. That's who. Young men hanging around Caltech in the 1930s who were inclined to laboratory pyrotechnics and singeing their eyebrows. And yes, like much involving aerospace, especially in those days, it's almost always about men, white men in particular. We'll get into that. But here's our crew. First off, Frank Molina, the Renaissance man. Molina kind of slightly thinks of himself as being something of a polymath, somebody who's interested in arts as well as science. That's Fraser McDonald. He's a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh and the author of Escape from Earth, A Secret History of the Space Rocket. That much more rounded education, I think, is partly what Molina brings ultimately to rocketry and helps him think about not just how to make a rocket, but why to make a rocket. He wanted to make a rocket in order to improve the ordinary lives of people, whether that's through a better understanding of the Earth's atmosphere or whether it's applications like weather forecasting. Next up, Jack Parsons. He's a kind of half-genius amateur chemist, half-unhinged mystic. And let me get something out of the way. I have some serious reservations about Parsons, especially compared to Molina. But I'll bite my tongue for now. He was from a broken family, really, and became a self-taught chemist. He uh, liked to keep explosives at home, and he mixed them under, shall we say, without adequate safety protections. Parsons is a rich kid, at least until his family goes broke in the Depression. He's from Pasadena. He's tall, and in one photo, he appears as though he has a spray tan an unusual effect for the time. In addition to being a good enough chemist to fall in with Molina, Parsons dabbles in some pretty risque hobbies and beliefs on the side. He's been drawn to the occult since childhood. As the Suicide Squad starts to make its mark, he develops a side hustle as one of Southern California's most well-known satanic orgy organizers. Number three, Ed Foreman, the tinkerer who could build almost anything out of junkyard finds. Yet another self-taught rocketeer. Foreman is really a machinist, right? He's very practical, hands-on guy. I think it's fair to say that he is best described as Parsons' sidekick. Foreman and Parsons were childhood friends, and they both loved science fiction. Starting to work with Frank Molina must have felt like the first step toward realizing their childhood motto, Prospera ad astra, or through hardship to the stars. He and Parsons met at school. Parsons was being beaten by another kid. Foreman dragged him off, 
And I think that is really important for their relationship because they've got this absolute early loyalty from the beginning. So Parsons and Foreman are always a kind of a unit, if you like, uh, a, a kind of an engineering couple. They're later joined by Chen Chu Shen, the math whiz, an immigrant from China who becomes fast friends with Molina. Chen is, I think it's fair to say he was quite academically arrogant. Um, he was known to be absolutely brilliant. Those who were taught by him said that he had the attitude that if you couldn't keep up, then too bad. That was your problem, not his. But very, very gifted and, and able to bring to the Suicide Squad a much greater degree of mathematical training and insight that really, really uh, kind of helped them out. So there's the setup. Caltech grad student Molina is hell-bent on pursuing research into rocket propulsion, no matter if people think his thesis is a waste of his talents. And then Parsons and Foreman, who've been blowing things up together since they were kids, volunteer to help. Soon the three of them are driving around Los Angeles, canvassing the region, asking for cheap parts to build a theoretical rocket motor. At the very beginning of this relationship, I think the credit can reasonably be thought as being evenly distributed. They're, they're all doing important work. They're all bringing different things. So Molina has his band, and he has an overflow of idealism. But he's frustrated because what he doesn't have is resources or money. And that's an existential threat to his progress. If he's going to get this thing off the ground, excuse the terrible pun, this trio is going to need a backer. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. What is it about Southern California, the greater Los Angeles area? that's made it such fertile ground over time for blowing stuff up. Peter Westwick, I'm a research professor of history at USC. Peter Westwick has written extensively on the topic. A lot of people just say it was the weather, um, you know, blue skies, you can fly year-round. But there were several other reasons that made LA especially attractive. Um, one is research universities like Caltech and Berkeley and Stanford, uh, also open shop labor. LA was notorious as an anti-union town presence of venture capital from other industries like the oil industry. So all of this explains why aerospace really turned Southern California from what was really kind of a dusty agricultural backwater into this high-tech metropolis that we know today. 
Southern California was attractive to Frank Molina, too. Because of Caltech, the university was home to the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, GALSIT for short. It had a 10-foot wind tunnel, the only one in the region, which students could use to test airplane designs. And at the time, airplanes were about as close as you could get to rockets. Plus, the director of GALSIT had a reputation for being interested in unconventional ideas. His name was Theodore von Karman. Theodor von Karman was a very charismatic uh, uh, person, and he had this ability to visualize the future of technology based on solid science. And in that respect, he was very, I would say, adventurous, risk-taking, and allowing that younger students and postdoctoral uh, fellows to follow their dreams and ideas. My name is Maury Garib. I'm the chair of aerospace department at Caltech and also director of the Center for Autonomous Systems and Technologies. While von Karman is idealistic about rockets and space travel, there's another more utilitarian use for rockets that he envisions. Von Karman had served in the Austro-Hungarian military during World War I you know, to help its Army Air Corps uh, develop so von Karman is very aware of kind of military problems um, and has a similar vision for, you know, bringing university R&D to bear on industry and or military problems. In fact, as we're going to see, Caltech and Galset are going to establish a lot of ties between the academic side of rocketry and the field's military applications, which have huge ramifications down the road, particularly for our squad members. But at this point, in 1936, the military is far from their minds. Molina, Parsons, and Foreman are just trying to develop a working rocket motor. They're scouring junkyards for scrap metal, and Molina is failing to get anyone to buy into his PhD project. Molina, first of all, approached um, another engineer, much more straight, um, an American called Clark Milliken. Author Fraser McDonald again. And Milliken just said, look, don't be ridiculous. You can't do a PhD on, on rocketry. Rocketry is not even a thing. But when Molina speaks with von Karman, things go differently, in that von Karman doesn't laugh in Molina's face. And that's the thing about von Karman, is that he is a quirky guy. He's not like lots of other scientists. He's quite open-minded. Von Karman gives Molina the thing no one else would, a shot. Von Karman said, yeah, no, well, let's let's think about this. And well, maybe if you can get some data on making a rocket motor, maybe we can, maybe there's potential here. Getting von Karman's support means Molina can study rocketry for his PhD thesis and use Gausset's resources to perform tests. So Molina sets out to collect the data von Karman wants to prove that making a rocket motor is possible. But Molina doesn't have to do it alone. And according to JPL historian Eric Conway, he knows he can't. And I think what's important about Molina and von Karman is that they understood that they needed different skills. They wanted, they needed different skills to achieve this. So the squad resolves to work together. But collaboration between big personalities presents its own challenges. 
While planning their first rocket motor test, a critical proof of concept, some differences in style reveal themselves. So there's this tension between them, which is Parsons and Foreman, they just like shooting rockets. Like, they love the charisma of it. But Molina was not interested in that at all. He wanted to build a rocket motor, and he realized that the only way to do that was to approach it with a degree of mathematical seriousness, right? So... Actually firing rockets, he felt, was a very, very distant kind of prospect. He just wanted to do static tests. He wanted to measure things. And that led to all sorts of tensions between them because for this was a very dry, austere program of work that Molina was outlining to Parsons and Foreman. After much back and forth, the crew schedules their test, and they schedule it on Halloween night. Points for theatricality. Just north of the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, there's a rock formation called Devil's Gate because people say the rocks there look like the face of a demon. If you see it from the side, there's an outcropping that looks like horns. On Halloween 1936, Molina, Parsons, and Foreman drive up to the Devil's Gate in a dry riverbed called the Arroyo Seco to test their homemade rocket motor. They're not firing anything. They're not firing anything to space. This is a a rocket motor that's essentially pointing downwards and they're using a combination of liquid propellants, um, uh, methyl alcohol and uh, gaseous oxygen. A photograph is taken before ignition. The squad is sprawled in the dirt, wearing slacks and button-up shirts. They're resting close to a weird metal contraption. It looks like a bicycle pump surrounded by sandbags. The sandbags are there to absorb a blast if anything explodes. As I look at the photo, one thing stands out. Parsons and Foreman are grinning, smirking. But Molina's countenance is grim, burdened, concerned maybe. Soon after the photo is taken, the test begins, and Molina may have had reasons to be concerned. Lots of things go wrong. The fuse keeps blowing out. Then, once Parsons finally gets the fuse to light, a massive flame erupts from the motor. An oxygen hose that was once connected breaks free, swinging around wildly, which causes the fuel spills from earlier tests to catch fire, too. In the face of calamity, the squad does what any rational scientist would do. They each run like hell in the other direction. But despite these hiccups... They learn what not to do. And it it starts this constant shuttling back and forth between experiment and analysis, between generating data and the theoretical dimensions of uh, analysing that data. And that really... That's where it starts, that, that, that relationship between uh, a kind of practice and theory. The squad got the kind of data von Karman was looking for. And for that reason, for Molina, Halloween is successful. There's something very particular that happens at this moment. So we're talking kind of mid to late 1930s, which is that rocketry doesn't exist as a scientifically respectable field. It just doesn't. It's... It's a ridiculous notion to think that a scientist, a serious scientist, far less a PhD student at Caltech, would bother risking their reputation in anything as outlandish as a rocket. The words rocket and science did not belong in the same sentence. What's interesting here is that it's Molina first 
that makes rocketry respectable as a, a scientific domain. And JPL use it as a sort of charismatic myth of origin. Only a couple months later, their motor works without the hiccups. In January, the engine runs for 44 seconds straight. It means rocket propulsion is acquiring a scientific basis. It means an extraordinary idea, space travel, thought to be ludicrous by most people, may just have a shot. The story you're about to hear is about a group of unsung engineers who shaped our quest to get off this planet and set up today's billionaires to cram us into arcs when the time comes. But it's also about people who didn't get to play in the sandbox, who were excluded from aerospace for really, really bad reasons. There will be satanic ceremonies. There will be drugs and sex and some practices known as sex magic. Also, a wannabe screenwriter named L. Ron Hubbard. Yes, that L. Ron Hubbard, the guy who created Scientology, who was befriended by Jack Parsons. There will be a profoundly disruptive communist scare, and ultimately, there will be a suspicious death. Long before Musk, Bezos, and Branson, there was Foreman, Chen, Molina, and Parsons. And if it weren't for them, today's eccentric billionaires likely wouldn't be boarding spaceships anytime soon. The real question, though, is why these guys, the Suicide Squad, were able to be so successful together at something the world thought was a joke? And why, despite their success, did they face ruin in the process? That's next time on Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. This show is a production of L.A. Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Serejito is the executive producer for LA's studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Becky Nicolaitis, and Caitlin Parker. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Fact-checking by Becky Nicolaitis and Caitlin Parker. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at LAist.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at LAist Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. LA Made Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford who believe 
that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.